Corey, is this a Black Angus production? <laughs> Sorry, that was Corey's first company out of uh, college, right? Anyway, I actually found one of your cards recently, when I was, which is what made me think about it. Anyway, um, we this morning continue in our study of Romans. We are in chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. And I thought given the, uh, the transition here uh, in Paul's discussion, we'll go ahead and put this text in front of us before we jump in to any more explanation. Hear now God's word. Then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles or laws of God. What if, someone were un- what if some were unfaithful? Does that unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, and every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you judged, which is a quote from Psalm 51. But if your unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in human ways. By no means. For then how would God judge the world? But if through my lie God through abound, uh, God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, continue to feed and encourage us Lord, as a living temple, as it was prayed this morning, living stones gathered together on which the foundation of all that you are redoing and renewing in creation is built. And we pray that what is said this morning would continue to build us up as living stones, as you would shape and mold us, Lord. And whatever is said that is not useful for the building up of your people or true, Lord, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, uh, a pastor friend of mine down in Salem, Christopher Bechtel, uh, asked me what I was preaching, and I said Romans, uh, and Paul is handy because, you know, your next sermon is sort of laid out for you in several points because it's Paul, and he was trying to preach through 1 Peter, which is not nearly as uh, easy to flow and uh, follow uh, and so I was, I was enjoying the fact that I was preaching through Romans. And then you get to a passage like this. We're like, my stars, Paul, what are you saying? We're going back and forth. Uh, and there's all these little uh, half comments that he seems to include. And certainly in translation, uh, it can be a challenge. But 
On the whole, I hope this morning what we can find is that when we unpack and untangle these sentences just a little bit, putting them perhaps in a slightly different uh, phraseology, we'll see that Paul's logic continues to build as he defends God's right to act, even in the midst of human rebellion, and how God's justice is shown to reflect his glory even when his people are challenged in their own follow-through with their great blessing and their great uh, calling. Because what we find here at the beginning of Romans uh, chapter 3 is that those who were covenant people, those who were God's covenant people, the Israelites, the Jews, uh, they were entrusted, Paul says, with the law, with the covenant of God. They were entrusted with both his law, the oracles, and with circumcision. And what Paul is saying is that they were given on Mount Sinai both the full explanation of who God is in the sense of his loving, gracious holiness and glory and how they could engage with and follow God and engage with God's activity in the world. And they were given the assurance of circumcision. They were given the assurance of a covenant where God said, I will be faithful to you. I make a promise. I don't just give you a description of who I am, but I make a promise to you that even in the ups and downs, and that quote on the front assumes, uh, even in Deuteronomy, that they're going to go into exile, that they're going to spend time in Babylon. God already knows the trials and tribulations that human weakness and sin is going to bring upon even his own covenant people, and he promises his faithfulness. Illustrations, uh, I'm sure, could be both uh, profound and uh, inane. So we'll start with an inane one. You remember the challenge in uh, A Wonderful Life where Uncle Billy loses the money, right? Because he gets distracted. Instead of going right back and depositing the money in It's a Wonderful Life, he gets distracted and loses the money. And in more than one way, Israel regularly gets distracted from their calling to be a blessing to the nations. It was the same calling that Abraham was given, or Abram at the beginning, to take all of this stuff, this what I'm giving you, my grace, my mercy, all of God's blessing, I'm entrusting it to you so that you can go share it, so that you are entrusted as my ambassadors to bring it into the world. There was always the expectation of entrusting something for the good of others. Jesus unpacks this in his parables when we talk about the sublime in Matthew 21 through 26, where he regularly confronts in what's called the temple discourse, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the high priests with their responsibility and their opportunity to be those who tended the vineyards who had the opportunity to be those who, because they were entrusted with the law and with the covenant promises inherent in circumcision to be a blessing to the nations, and they had failed to do so. And one of the great crescendos of that, of course, is the cleansing of the temple, which is specifically the court of the Gentiles. That because they assumed no Gentiles would be in worship, they had set up the very necessary business of selling and uh, money changing, which needed to happen. People weren't going to bring their doves 200 miles or 50 miles and several days hiking. Some place needed to be set up so that people could buy acceptable sacrifices when they got to the temple, but not in the court of the Gentiles. 
not in the place set aside for God's people to be a blessing to the nations. And so Jesus cleanses the temple and he preaches against the tendency in God's people not to be stewards of, those, uh, of what was entrusted to them. It was misused. And as the psalmist says, when you misuse God's glory, instead of the hope and the promise of the kingdom, we will simply die like people, die like men, using the same power and violence as the psalmist said, not wise uh, as serpent harmless as doves, but, but the violence of human power and authority that misuses the good gifts of God. So let's walk through this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. We see that there is a huge advantage. We've already started to lay it out in the opening of the illustration. The Jews had the law, they had the covenant, they had circumcision. And Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a law of love and grace, and it's deeper than you can possibly imagine. You've created some superficial ways in which you try and keep the Sabbath, in which you try and technically not sin sexually or sin uh, financially or sin uh, fill in the blank. And so he's got these technical sins that they think they've managed, and he says, no, but your hearts are still enslaved. Right? And this is the thing we have to wrestle with. And this is where our reformational fighting against the law as a burden versus law as freedom. If we really rest in what it means to become increasingly more like Christ, is there anything freer than not being greedy? Is there anything freer than not having our minds overwhelmed by thoughts of what the other people have or of lust or of fear or of anxiety? Fill in the blank. There is no freedom in having a heart overwhelmed by the brokenness of our own hearts and the world around us. And in days like this, the ability to rest in the fullness of God as there are so many ways in which fear is being foisted against us, whether it is a fear of the pandemic as opposed to uh, interacting with the realities of the pandemic, or the fear of the changes, whether one is on one side politically or another, it is a sense that there is fear being propagated all around us. There's no freedom in fear. God says that perfect love drives out fear. And so the blessing of Matthew 25, the blessing of the law, the blessing of the covenant has always been, I want to set you free from the things that drive the world, the idolatry, the bales and the asher poles. There's no freedom in those things. The Canaanites are not free people. They sacrifice their children at altars. That's not a free society, at least not for the kids. This is not a happy place when we're living in that kind of fear with those kinds of domineering gods. And the gods have stayed and they've changed their names and they have new marketing schemes, but they still call us to sacrifice our children. They still call us to sacrifice our life and our health, our community and our trust of one another. The gods still set up the same oppositions. The false powers of this world still seek to rob us of real freedom And the challenge that Paul is pressing against and as Jesus is pressing against in his Sermon on the Mount is that the law of God was meant for freedom and the promises of the covenant mean you don't have to fret about whether God will leave you or forsake you. 
This is a setup for freedom. That's what Israel was supposed to communicate. The law is a law of love which frees us from the bondage of sin. And even when we fail, we have covenant relationship with God and we will never be left or forsaken as we repent and walk humbly with our God. And that doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New. The security we have in Christ, the means of our ultimate salvation is revealed. The Messiah is revealed. But the promise of law and God's faithfulness through his covenant, that is simply expanded on and enriched in Jesus' ministry, not changed. 1 Corinthians, Paul unpacks as what? Love, the doctrine of love. The, the whole law is a resounding gong without love. This is what Israel was given, not some hard, harsh notion of religious pietism that sucks the fun out of life and gives us the responsibility of running around in the stereotypical ways we imagine a Pharisee correcting other people. Real or imagined, whatever that concept of what the law will do to you and to me and what God's faithfulness and covenant is, Paul is saying it was of great value. You were entrusted with the whole freedom of God. Verses 3 and 6, that responsibility meant that God expected them to live in accordance with those things. Not perfectly, hence the sacrificial system, hence certain roles of the shedding of blood uh, at, the, uh, at the altar. There were accommodations for sin and brokenness. But the expectation that God's people could and would unpack the law and live it out towards one another was an expectation. What if some were unfaithful? Does that faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? No. So we see what Paul is saying. You were given this amazing promise, and God promised to be faithful. And not all Israelites, but a lot of Israelites dropped the ball. Now, does that mean God wasn't faithful or that God's law isn't wise? No. No, that doesn't nullify. In fact, what the history shows is that God continued to be faithful. And the fact that every time Israel pursued worldly power and worldly pragmatism, they ended up where worldly people end up, which is a victim when they lose power. It's all fun and games when you want to play, let's have the biggest army until somebody has a bigger army. And then you want to play, let's make peace. Right? I mean, when we use worldly power, and again, what our stress is right now in our country is that there is a way in which we are tempted to use political power one side or another. And I'm telling you, everything the Bible says about the way political and worldly power use, is used is that today we may win and tomorrow somebody will use it against you. Unless we use a different setup of love and mercy and service, unless the kingdom of God ethic is expressed through God's people, simply using worldly power today only means just like Israel, it'll get used against us tomorrow. There is no peace when we use the power of the world. And so God is justified both in his law and in his actions is that every time God's people do knuckleheaded things, knuckleheaded things happen because that's the nature of God's created moral order. And when you use the powers of the world, the clock is ticking about when they'll get used against you. 
But when we use the power of God, even if this side of glory, it looks like we lost, and this is the whole shame of the cross for Paul, is that Paul, Jesus didn't lose. He rose again. The world thinks they killed him. He got up. It's the power of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The enemy thinks they have destroyed Aslan. It is a temporary victory because when worldly power is used on one who is working out of kingdom power, out of the ethic and quality of Christ, then actually the world can't win, evil can't win, because it cannot defeat the eternal ethics. Only when we're tempted to use worldly power against worldly power is it a futile tit-for-tat. Jesus' resurrection shows us that ultimately... God will be justified and that God has been faithful because every time we use worldly power, worldly things happen. But when Jesus was the first and greatest to only use divine power and divine ethics, he broke the power of sin and death. The enemies were defeated. They don't want us to remember that. They want us to be confused and think, ah, no, this time, You should use worldly power. It'll be expeditious. Sin and evil bring death. Rejecting the law and the covenant doesn't bring freedom. It brings slavery. And it proves God right. That's what Paul is saying. Not that Jesus is wagging his finger. Ha ha, I was right. Oh, please, of course not. It means that in that moment when we wrestle with what is pragmatically most effective at that moment and we choose wrongly, it doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God and it doesn't change the eternal realities that God was right and thank God that he was. Wouldn't it be horrible if I was? When I sin and when I use earthly power, isn't the last thing any of us want is to be proven right? It undoes the fabric of the world and creation if my pragmatism and my sin is proved to be right. That I was justified in sinning against you because it made something more effective for me. No, God has to be proven right every time because his truth is deeper than the invader, the temporary virus of sin. Verse 7, then uh, how can... Uh, God be righteous. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And again, what Paul's trying to unpack here is that uh, how can it be fair if uh, it brings God uh, glory? How can it be fair if I am rightly condemned for my sin if it's bringing glory to God? And that's kind of an interesting human argument that Paul is trying to press against, right? There is this backwards way in which we might think, well, if God is glorified in being right, then why am I being condemned for having sin? It brought God glory. Well, no. And you know if you slow down that that's really not a good thought, right? It's not like the people who nailed Jesus to the cross are proved right in their action because it was the way that Jesus was going to defeat sin and death. No, they're still responsible. Pilate is still responsible for washing his hands. The high priest is still responsible for turning Jesus over. 
just because it was the glorification and enthronement of the king doesn't make their actions right. And if we take a deep breath, we know that. It's a defensive action to try and twist what is clearly sin into something good. right? And we haven't stopped this habit. Right? I don't know if you've ever heard a conversation where somebody will say, well, you know, slavery was a good idea because it brought black people over here because then they got to experience Jesus and the gospel. Okay, you, you can't work that way. It doesn't make one thing right. What should have happened is that nice missionaries should have gone over to Africa and engaged with people with respect for their culture and shared Jesus. But the notion that somehow we can justify the fact that they experienced Jesus as somehow a justification, no. Can God bring some good out of it? Perhaps, but my stars, we can't justify or declare something good that was evil just because it may have had some effects that God could redeem. The right way, God's way, would have been very different than man's way, and it doesn't justify man's way. So yes, is it fair, even if it brings God glory, for sin to be just condemned? Yes, Because it still causes, every time, an anti-image-bearing action. God is justified every time I take what he gave me as a reflection of an image-bearer to creator himself and act contrary to what it means to be an image-bearer. If I'm reflecting some glory other than God's out of my actions, if I am warping or distorting that image then God is justified, Paul is saying. So moving on then to verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying uh, their condemnation is just. Uh, Good to the world and to others, and doing good is the expectation. Uh, The Proverbs and the Old Testament law says it is my responsibility not just to do the absence of evil, but if it's in my power to do good and I fail to do good, then that's contrary to the image-bearing of God. God has the ability to do good. There's no moral requirement that he give himself on my behalf. And yet, because his expectation and his character is one of love and mercy and faithfulness to his covenant, God does good in the positive towards his creation. And that expectation then is set for us as his created beings. That it's not just the absence of me sinning against you, but if I have the opportunity to do good, I'm called to do so. And because of that scriptural ethic, Paul can push hard against the perversion that people would accuse him of because he was redefining Sabbath through Jesus. He was redefining temple uh, obedience through the work of a resurrected Christ. And he was accused of being in favor, apparently, of doing more sin so that more grace could abound. And his quoting of Psalm 51 uh, is uh, an interesting side note that some people, some rabbis had even argued that what David is talking about in Psalm 51 verses uh, there in in, in verse uh, 7 and 6, 6 and 7, actually suggests that that, uh, maybe sinning does glorify God because God gets to be more forgiving. Uh, that is not Paul's view. He is aggressively against that view. That doing, other, that doing evil, and this is what we got to remember, doing evil, doing 
things that are contrary to the law of God means other people suffer. I can't sin without impacting other people. There really isn't the ability, there's nothing in Scripture, there's nothing in our understanding of what it means to be created in community that could give us the notion that there's some way in which I could pursue a life of sin because of God's grace, not have it count against me, and not be connected to you. You will suffer if I sin, either directly or indirectly, but there's no way for me to enjoy a life of sin and self-absorption without it having consequences on those around me. We see it in ever greater degrees in our more connected world, right? We know how difficult it is to buy a pair of shoes or to buy something that is affordable and then not hear later on that perhaps prisoners were used or uh, increasingly in China, it's um, the uh, Muslim group, uh, the Uyghurs that are being uh, oppressed. How can I buy almost anything without, and that's the reality of sin. And so the reason it doesn't work, that simply because of God's grace we should go uh, willy-nilly do sin, is that it speaks against the very nature of who we're created to be and recreated to be in Christ and the reality that we live in an interconnected world and that the covenant of grace was always about using what's been entrusted to us for the mercy and grace of others, to care for others, to be a blessing to others. How on earth could that covenant change from being a blessing to others to being, well, now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want and I don't have any repercussions for anyone around me. Jesus said, not a jot or tittle changes from the law. We're still interconnected. Verse 9 Then finally, um, we are all under sin, he says. He brings this back around. The point of this uh, exposition of the Jewish folks is not to say somehow now that they're worse than the Gentiles, but to remind us that we all end up in the same place. That it is by sheer grace and that it is by our own reflection on the gifts of God and His mercy in our own lives and the avoidance of what we talked about last week. What about looking to the other as a way to self-justify, distracting from our own sin by pointing to others as individuals or as a group? It is the great blessing of the church above every other organization in the world to lead in repentance and confession. We have the ability because we know that we're all sinners. My stars, especially Reformed churches where we believe that everybody is conceived in sin and born in sin is inherently not neutral, but born under condemnation. And because of that, we should be the ones who are... Absolutely. Let me tell you. We have nothing to defend. Nothing to protect. It's all of Christ. We above all should lead in our ability to be reflective, 
confessional, not the most defensive, not the most able to rationalize our actions, but the ones to say yes, but the grace of God, His glory, not my glory, His faithfulness, not my faithfulness, individually and corporately, that's what we point to, is the faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ. In so doing, we can be those who live open lives, lives not just of repentance, but of joy and of freedom, because we know there is no difference between Jew or Greek, born as a Christian or converting later in life, that all are sinners. And God is justified and glorified because he is in the business of saving sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would allow us the freedom of the law, that we would increasingly not listen to the enemy that tells us we are still under the condemnation of the law, but Lord, we are still under its wise and gracious instruction. Lord, that your covenant with us through baptism is not a license to sin, it is an assurance that in the midst of our weakness, we are secure in you. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will have those glorious bodies no longer tempted by the brokenness of sin, but able to run free and strong. Until then, be our strength. In Christ's name, amen.